I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. We are so glad to be with you and among so many friends. Well, we're in the book of Joshua, winning the future. And yesterday, we looked at two of the greatest miracles in the book of Joshua. The miracle of the crossing of the Jordan River. And then last night, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. And after those two great miracles, it would seem as if the way is clear for Joshua and the people of God to roll from victory unto victory unto victory. But oh, the difference one chapter in the Bible makes. Oh, the difference one day makes in your spiritual life. We're going to look today at Joshua 7. The title of the message is Sin in the Camp. Sin in the Camp. Joshua 7. This is the story of Achan's sin that brought the whole nation of Israel into terrible defeat. And the most striking thing to me, the most, the most basic, the beginning observation is what a difference between Joshua 6 and Joshua 7. If Joshua 6 is the thrill of victory, then Joshua 7 is the agony of defeat. So let's begin not with chapter 7, let's begin with the last verse of Joshua 6. This is the end of the story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Joshua 6, 27. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Now, as I said, you would expect after a verse like that, that the next chapter is just some other great victory. Let's, for the moment, let's pass over verse 1 of Joshua 7, and let's pick up the story with verse number 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go out and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Now Jericho is now low. It's, it's near the Jordan River. It's not that far from the Dead Sea. So when the Bible says the men went up, that's quite literally true. Jericho is down low. To get to Ai, you got to go north a little bit and west up into the mountains in the central region of the Holy Land. There you will come to the town of Ai. When they returned to Joshua, having spied it out, they brought back exceedingly good news. Quote, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send maybe two or three thousand men to take it. And do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. Compared to Jericho, Ai was nothing. Compared to Jericho, Ai was, it wasn't even really a city. It was a town. 
It was a village. There was nothing to it. The spies came back and said, tell you what, general, let's just send the JV, send the junior varsity boys up there. They didn't get a real good workout at Jericho. Let's send the second team up there and they can mop up that town of AI. There'll be nothing to it. Verse four. So about 3,000 men went up, just a small detachment, but they were routed. We don't expect that. They were routed by the men of AI who killed about 36 of them. I pause here to say this. In the whole book of Jericho, of all the battles of the Jewish people, this is the only defeat they suffered. And this is the only recorded loss of Jewish life in battle. 36, not only did the Jews lose, not only were they routed, but 36 of the soldiers were put to death. They chased the Israelites from the city gates as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, when word filtered back to Jericho, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Now stop here just to say this, what happened? What happened and why? How is it that God's people, having crossed the Jordan River, and having won the amazing battle at Jericho, having defeated a much greater enemy, having, having crossed the impossible river and defeated the impossible city, how in the world could they end up defeated at the little town of Ai? Read on, verse 6. And Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Remaining there until evening, the elders of the Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, ah, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you even bring us across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan River. And I got to say, I love verse 8. Pardon me, O Lord. I love this. Pardon me. Pardon your servant, Lord. I don't mean to intrude on your business. But Lord, what am I supposed to say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country? Once they hear what has happened to us, they will surround us. And look what he says. And will wipe out our name from the earth. But wait a minute. The end of verse 9. And by the way, Lord, when that happens... What will you do for your own great name? And I stop here to say something. At this point in the story, only God knows what has really happened. At this point in the story, nobody is pointing a finger at Achan. In fact, at this point in the story, nobody's pointing a finger at anybody. Joshua doesn't suspect Achan because he doesn't know what Achan did. Nobody has a clue. Only God understands what's really happened here. So look at verse 10. The Lord says to Joshua, stand up, stand up, get on your feet, man. What are you doing down there on your face? Look at verse 11. Israel, that's the whole nation. Israel has sinned. And I want you to notice, notice the pronouns here. They 
have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have stolen some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. And that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They And they turned their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. And all God's people said, huh? What are you even talking about? Nobody has the slightest idea of what God means when he says this. And look what God says. The end of verse 12. I, the most frightening verse of the whole story. I will not be with you anymore. But had God not said in Joshua 1, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Here God says, you have known my blessing. My hand has been upon you. My hand has protected you. My hand has led you. But guess what? I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. I want to pause here. And I want to recall to your mind what I said to you. And I said this in passing last night. That, that when, before the walls fell, God instructed the Jews, the horn's going to blow. You're going to shout, the walls are going to fall, you're going to take the city. But the city itself is harem. It's harem. It's, it's devoted to destruction. It's like anathema. That's why you're to kill everybody in the city, young and old, rich and poor, male and female. Kill all the animals. Everybody's to die. But of the gold, of the silver, of the precious jewels, of everything of value in the city. If it's of great value, bring it to the treasury of the house of the Lord. In other words, no, nobody gets to take any spoils of battle in Jericho. It's all devoted to the Lord. Watch what I'm about to say. I don't know how many Israeli soldiers went into battle in Jericho. But let us assume it was tens of thousands. And whatever it was, everybody in the army obeyed that command. Except for one man. If it was 50,000, 49,999 obeyed the word of the Lord. The great catastrophe did not come because of a thousand or five hundred or a hundred or fifty or even a dozen. One man disobeyed and brought judgment of God upon the entire nation. Let me say it to you this way. One man disobeyed. That's why there are 36 funerals in Israel. One man disobeyed. And that's why there are 36 grieving families. One man disobeyed. And that's why the nation has been put to shame. One man disobeyed. That is why the judgment of God has fallen. Verse 13. Go, consecrate the people. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord says. There are devoted things among you. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is a concept we have trouble with. How many, how many people disobeyed? One. 
Who does God hold responsible? One man stands for the whole nation. When one man sins, the whole nation suffers. Verse 14, in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward, clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. And whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and done an outrageous thing in Israel. Let me stop here and say, there's one part of this story again we don't fully understand. That is, it was typical in the Old Testament, typical in the Old Testament, to kill people by stoning. That's going to happen later in this story. That's not the shocking part. The shocking part is the burning. Achan is going to be stoned to death. Uh, it, it was considered, remember, if you hung somebody, if somebody was hung in judgment, the body had to be taken down before sundown. That all had to be done before sundown. Couldn't, and it could not be done on the Sabbath at all. This is one of the rare times in the Bible where somebody's not just put to death, but their bodies are actually burned. That's the, that's the ultimate sign of disgrace from the Lord. And so tomorrow comes, and I just sum up the story. <clears throat> There's a process of elimination. First the tribe, then the clan, then the family. Then Achan is found out. He confesses. And he and his family are stoned to death. Stoned to death. This is all I want to do this morning. I want to give you some lessons from Achan's story. These are the things we ought to be thinking about. Number one, God's ways often seem mysterious to us. No one expected defeat at Ai. After Jericho, I mean, that would have led to evening news. Everybody up and down the land would have been talking about the amazing victory of the Jews. The walls came tumbling down and the whole evil city of the Canaanites was wiped out. And it appears at the end of chapter 6 that Joshua is ready to run the table. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land and everybody has heard about it. Listen, Jericho was hard. AI should be easy. Which is why this story is so shocking. Easy victory leads to shameful defeat. Here's the thing. Beginning of chapter 7. Joshua has no idea why this has happened. He is baffled by God. Baffled by what has happened. I mean the question is. If God was with them in Jericho. Why wasn't he with them at Ai? So I just comment from the beginning of the story. It's not a sin to be confused by the Lord. I suppose we could say it this way. A God who never surprised us would hardly be God at all. Right? A God who never surprised us would hardly be God at all. When we face defeat, confusion, and sudden setbacks, we ought to stop in our tracks and ask the Lord some questions. That's number one. 
God's ways often seem mysterious to us. Here's the second lesson. God cares about his reputation in the world. That's the point that uh, Joshua makes. He says, listen, Lord, the Canaanites, they're going to hear about this. They're going to surround us. They're going to think easy pickings. They're going to come and wipe us out. And this is Joshua's argument. What then will you do for your own great name? You know what? That's Joshua 7, 9. Let me just comment. That kind of argument seems strange to us in the 21st century. It feels odd to us. We don't think about defending God's reputation in the world. But you know what Joshua is saying? He's saying, Lord, we're in trouble here, but so are you. If we die, your reputation will take a big hit. Is that what you want? Now, we may think that's impertinent, but God cares about his name. He cares about his reputation. And because we bear his name in the world, what happens to us impacts God's great name in the world. Here's the third lesson. Your sin always hurts other people. That's a very clear point in Joshua 7. Verse 1 says, that's the verse I skipped. That verse says, the judgment had come. In fact, verse 1 says, God's wrath was poured out on the nation because of Achan. And verse 1 says, it mentions Achan by name and says, but Israel was unfaithful. Achan was the man who did it, but the whole nation was held unfaithful. Verse 11 says, Israel has sinned. He even says it this way, they, talking about the whole nation, they have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions, but it was just one man. Look, 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 look. I have wrestled with this thought myself in preparing this message. This is not as easy for me to preach as Jericho and the Jordan River because it's coming at us in a different way. Let me say it to you this way. You've never committed a private sin, and you never will. There is no such thing as a private sin. That's a lie of the devil. And the devil may tell you, no one else knows. Oh, there's somebody who knows. Nobody else will see you. Oh, there's somebody else watching. Nobody else cares. Somebody else sees, hears, and knows and he is watching you. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 5? Paul said, something has gone wrong in your church. There is a man in your church who was sleeping with his father's wife. This is a scandalous thing. And not only is he doing it, you're allowing it to happen. And you are doing nothing about it. And Paul said, if you want God's blessing, then you come together in the name of the Holy Spirit. And you cast that man out of your midst. So that in the judgment of God, if he does not repent, 
his flesh may be destroyed so that his spirit in the judgment of God might be saved in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you're doing good, but uh, there's a little spot on the x-ray. What do you say when the doctor says that? If you're a fool, you walk away laughing. You say, it's nothing. If you're smart, you say, doc, you do whatever it takes to find out what that spot is because that spot might be cancer. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5? Talking about this man, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. How much, how much yeast does it take to leaven the whole loaf of bread? A little tiny pinch of yeast. How much does it take? Not much. And how long does it take? Not very long. Just a little bit put into the loaf. And soon the yeast spreads everywhere. That's the argument. Sin spreads like yeast in a ball of dough. Leave it alone, and soon it will permeate every part. Achan only thought he got away with it. God said, your sin has brought judgment, not just on you and your family, but on the whole nation. Here is number four. God will not bless where sin is is covered up. Verse 12, I will not be with you anymore. A terrifying verse. Unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. What he means is I will not be with you to bless you. I will not be with you to hear your prayers. I will not be with you to deliver you from your enemies. I will not be with you to lead you forward anymore. In other words, I will not be with you to help you in your time of trouble. That ought to be clear. By the way, by the way, still, in all of this, at this point in the story, by, by the time you get to verse 12, Joshua knows somebody's done something bad. He still has no idea. It's Achan. And Achan, the man, has no idea he's about to be exposed. All he knows is there is sin in the camp and it must be dealt with. The bottom line is very clear. Unless we deal with sin honestly, we cannot know the blessing of God. Here is number five. God knows how to bring our sin to light. Um, here's the irony of the story. Achan was not a poor man. Maybe the story works out a little differently if he had been a poor man. Maybe. I don't know. He's a rich man. He's got kids. He's got donkeys. He's got oxen. He's got sheep. They're mentioned later in the chapter. Kids, donkeys, oxen, sheep. He's got a tent. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is the leading tribe of the nation. Here is a man of means. This is not a poor man who's trying to get something to eat. Here's a man who already has something. And yet, whatever he had was not enough. Let me, let me stop here and say something else. The rules were entirely clear. God made it clear. 
you shall not touch the silver and the gold and all the precious things. You shall not touch it. No trinkets, no souvenirs, no picking up gifts for your wife. I mean, we know that happens, right? We, we read about soldiers, you know, and there's a, when there's a victory, they go through the battlefield and, and, and they grab stuff. This is what soldiers have done since the beginning of time. And in this case, God makes it abundantly clear. You are not to touch anything. Achan didn't need to do this. Let me tell you what I think. I think that day was a long day for Achan because he knew what he had done was wrong. He lived with the fear of discovery. Every footfall near his tent made him sit up straight. His nerves were shot. His guilt was rising. He was miserable because of his iniquity. Right over this part of the story, the way of transgressors is hard. One writer said it this way, the rust of gold, like some satanic acid, ate into his soul like some unspeakable torture. And so on that next day, the nation gathers and no one except Achan knows who the guilty man is. Remember, until Achan is exposed, Joshua doesn't know. So the tribes come forward and God says, it's Judah. Then the clans of Judah come forward and God says, it's the Zerahites. Then the family of the Zerahite, the families of the Zerahites come forward and God says, it's Zimri. And then the people of Zimri come forward and God puts his finger and points it to Achan. God has already decreed the punishment. In verse 15, whoever is caught with the devoted things, remember, he doesn't simply say put him to death, destroyed with fire, the ultimate indignity, the, the ultimate shame, the ultimate reproach for a Jew, along with all that belongs to him. So this is a capital punishment case. And the reason is given, he has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. God takes all of this very seriously. So please now, write over this story a very familiar passage. Be sure your sins will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. As the poet said, though the mills of God grind slowly, they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness, grinds he all. Number six, honest confession brings glory to God. When Achan stood before Joshua, the great commander gave him this advice. You know, I think if I were Joshua, I wouldn't have gone easy on this young man. Your nation has been humiliated. Your army has been defeated. 36 brave soldiers are dead. 36 families are grieving. The whole nation has been plunged into despair. I think I would have told this kid off. This kid, he's a man, grown man. Verse 19, look what Joshua says. I'm quite surprised by this. My son, give glory to the Lord. 
Wow. That's very unexpected to me. My son, give glory to the Lord. That's where I get that principle. Honest confession brings glory to God. Give glory to God, the God of Israel, and honor him. True confession honors God. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. This is exceedingly personal. And it's happening in front of a whole nation. True confession is good for the soul. It relieves the burden of sin. And by the way, whatever else you want to say about Achan, give him credit. What happens now is this. He makes a full confession. He doesn't blame anybody. Verse 20. It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he specifies what he did. Boy, here's a pattern for confession. It is true. I have sinned. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. Let me read that again. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. Honest confession glorifies God because he is holy. God cannot dwell where sin is enshrined. When we say, I have sinned, as Achan did, we remove the barrier that stands between us and God. When I was preparing this message, I read a sermon by a pastor named A.B. McKay, who was a pastor in Montreal, Canada, in the 1880s. He wrote a book about Joshua called The Conquest of Canaan. It's long out of print. I found it on archive.org, and I was reading the sermons of this Presbyterian pastor from the 1880s. And when he got to this part of the story, he made a comment. He said, we know Achan was stoned to death. We know his body was burned. What happened to his eternal soul? And he pointed out that when the Puritans and the older commentators wrote about this passage. They said, who knows about his eternal destiny? Because at least before he died, he got right with God. He made no excuses. He admitted his sin. He admitted what he had done. Could Achan be in heaven? How about Proverbs 28, 13? He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And that brings me then to number seven. God always judges sin. He always judges sin. Someone said it this way. This goes with the point I'm just making. Someone said, you can shoot an arrow into the sky. Watch this. You can break the law and shoot an arrow into the sky. And while it is into the, in the sky, you can close your eyes and pray and sincerely repent. But the arrow will still come down, right? Sin 
always has consequences. Repentance does not remove all the human consequences of our sin. Murderers repent all the time. And I am not implying by that that they are not sincere. I have no doubt that I, I have no doubt. We've gotten many letters uh, from, from men on death row who've read my book and anchor for the soul. And they say they've repented and believed. That doesn't stop them from eventually being executed. But it also doesn't stop God from taking them to heaven. It really works both ways, doesn't it? Repentance truly is sincere. It does not remove all the human consequences of our sin. Come to the end of the story. Let me just read it to you. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkey and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Achor and Achan are related in the Hebrew language. They both basically mean trouble. Achan means trouble, and Achor means trouble. And Joshua, in verse 25, is making a play on words. Why have you, you troublemaker, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Harsh. Over Achan, they piled up a huge heap of rocks, which remains to this day. You say to me, Pastor Ray, pretty harsh. Perhaps it is. Perhaps it is. Or maybe not. Can you think of a story in the New Testament where somebody lied to an apostle in a church service and he dropped over dead and his wife dropped over dead? And that day, there were fresh graves in the churchyard. What happened to Achan in the Old Testament is the counterpart to what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 in the New Testament. And both stories serve the same purpose, to uphold the truth of the holiness of God. We all like to make our excuses Joshua knew what he was doing. And why did, why did they pile the, the stones on top of the burned corpse of, of Achan as a warning to the whole nation? Don't trifle with God. Don't trifle with God. Take God seriously or walk away. You say to me, Pastor Ray, oh, what a story. Got any good news? Is there any good news here? Is there any good news at all? Yes. The end of the story is good news. Verse 26, the last thing in the chapter. When they had dealt with sin in the camp, then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Verse 1 said he was angry. Verse 26 says when sin was dealt with, his wrath was gone. Here is a little footnote. Later, go back and read Acts, uh, read Joshua chapter 8. You know what happened? Now that sin has been taken care of, they go back and attack the city of Ai. Wipe it out just the way they wiped out Jericho. And God said to his people, this time 
you can keep the loot for yourself. Which meant if Achan had not been so greedy, if only he had been willing to wait a few more days, but he didn't. Write it down, friends. Write it down, write it down, write it down. Satan is a liar. Satan is a liar. From the beginning, he's a liar. He whispers into your ear. He buys your soul with counterfeit promises. He whispers into your ear. Don't wait. Go for the gusto. You deserve it. You need it. This will make you happy. Then he says, don't worry. This is just between you and me. No one else will ever know. Satan is a liar. He lies, he cheats, he steals, and then he destroys your soul. Here at the end, may I call to your memory the little song we learned as kids a long time ago. Oh, be careful the lies what you see. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes. Oh, be careful, little tongue. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. This is what happened to Achan. What the eye beholds, the heart covets, the hand takes. And the mind hides. Oh, what a sadness. This is a cautionary tale about the wrath and mercy of God. God's wrath burns against sin precisely because he loves us so much. His judgment on sin is actually part of his mercy to us. He loves us too much to let us get away with sin. He loves us so much that he will do whatever it takes to get us right with him. So fear the Lord and serve him gladly. If you sin, we have an advocate with the Father who will speak up on our behalf. So confess your sins quickly so that you might be forgiven. Here's the close of my sermon. God's wrath is real. We must preach it, but God's wrath will only condemn. It cannot save. How will we escape God's wrath? God has provided his own answer. In 1740, Charles Wesley, my first message, I mentioned the Wesley brothers. 1740, Charles Wesley, great hymn writer, wrote over 9,000 hymns. He wrote a hymn called Depth of Mercy. To my knowledge, it, it is still sung today in some places. To my knowledge, I have never sung it. It had... 13 verses. I will not give them all to you. But when I found this, I decided this is where I want to land my sermon. Depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear me, the chief of sinners, spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. I, my master, have denied, I afresh have crucified, and profaned his holy name, put him to an open shame. Jesus speaks and pleads his blood. He disarms the wrath of God. 
Now my father's mercies move. Justice lingers into love. Therefore me, the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love. I know I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. Still. And now the last verse. Now incline me to repent. Let me now my sins lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. God, help us to respond that way to the wrath and mercy and grace of God. Oh, Lord, we thank you that the blood of Jesus is greater than all our sin. Forgive us, Lord, for taking lightly what cost the blood of the Son of God. Forgive us for trifling with sin when you, through your Son, paid such a cost that we might be forgiven. Lord, help us now to weep, believe, and in Jesus' name, sin no more. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.